I invite you to open God's Word with me this morning as we consider together Psalm 100, which will serve as both our reading and our text for this morning. Psalm 100. where the word of the Lord reads as follows, a psalm of thanksgiving. Make a joyful shout to the Lord, all you lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful to him and bless his name. For the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting and his truth endures to all generations. Following the proclamation of the gospel, we will indeed together make a joyful shout to the Lord with the very words we've read together put to music, Psalm 100. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, it was August 27, 1883, when the earth produced a noise louder than it has made ever since. It was about 10 o'clock on the island of Krakatoa, a part of Indonesia, where a volcano erupted. The noise was so violent that it was heard approximately 3,100 kilometers away in Perth, Australia, and 5,000 kilometers away on the island of Rodriguez in the Indian Ocean. It would be something like someone in Montreal hearing a noise coming from London, England. Traveling at the speed of sound, it takes about four hours for a noise to cover that distance. A barometer roughly 100 miles away from Krakatoa registered a spike in air pressure that converted to 188 decibels of sound pressure. Our threshold for pain is about 130 decibels. 188 decibels is an incomprehensibly loud noise. It ruptured the eardrums of sailors some 65 kilometers away. And that spike in air pressure was detected in weather stations in 50 cities every 34 hours for five days. That means that the sound wave circled the earth four times. According to the word of the Lord this morning, there is something whose impact reverberates throughout this world, not only this physical world, but the spiritual realm and the whole universe. That is a joyful and thankful church. Psalm 100 is plainly speaking a thanksgiving psalm. 
Thanksgiving was a key element, we know, in Israel's worship. It's likely that this psalm was sung at the occasion of the thank offering, the peace offering which was offered for Thanksgiving, according to Leviticus 7. The psalm may have been used as a processional song for those entering the temple worship, for worship, as it calls the company of God's people to enter God's courts with shouts of praise. A thanksgiving service with a thanksgiving sacrifice would follow. The worship of God was to fill the dwelling place of God and indeed far, far beyond. The Lord wanted worship that could be heard loud and clear. Psalm 100, brothers and sisters, has been called the banner hymn of the Reformed tradition. In spite of its brevity, it offers a rich and profound universal call to respond to the Lord in worship, praise, and adoration. It holds out to us some of the details of our worship, how we must worship the Lord, and also why we have to worship Him. It has two simple sec- two sections that parallel one another, the verses one through three, and then verses four and five. Each of these two sections has a threefold command to praise God, as well as a threefold reason for praising God. And so we are going to, this morning, approach this psalm based on its unique structure. First, we're going to deal together with the call to worship, both in verses 1 and 2, and verse 4, and then the reason, the cause for worship, verses 3 and 5. Our God is calling out to us in this psalm to respond to his command by jam-packing his holy courts with the excitement of worshiping him. I preach to you then this word of the Lord. Worship the Lord with the joyful, thankful noise, for he is God. And we consider then the call to worship and the cause for worship. So then the call to worship issued in this psalm. As we alluded to, Our psalm is not really concerned with giving thanks in just any environment, as appropriate as that is. It has in mind, rather, the thanksgiving we render to the Lord as his gathered flock on the day of the Lord. Here is where we are called to worship. Here is where the Lord gives his marching orders for the church. And so the first three commands of our Lord are, make a joyful shout to the Lord, Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. These are called imperatives, commands, calls. Because, among other reasons, the time for worship may not be determined by our mood or our preference, what's convenient for us. We have to be simply told to worship God. And so our God holds out to us the character of our praise in these three commands. The first, make a joyful shout, is a word often found in Scripture in battle narratives. It plays an important role, for example, in Joshua 6. 
in the description of the Battle of Jericho. <clears throat> the shout not only signals the beginning of the battle, it's not only a war cry, <clears throat> it also, as we remember, causes those walls of Jericho to fall. This practice of shouting for joy was also done in honor of a king who led his people to victory on the battlefield. And we see that when we actually consider the Psalms that precede Psalm 100. Psalms 93 through 100 are often called King Psalms, Royal Psalms, because they continually call upon God's people to make a joyful noise to the Lord, the King over all the earth. But we read that this call is not strictly for God's covenant people. It's for all the earth indeed, the psalmist says. That is, not just Israel, but all peoples and nations have to shout in worship and thankful praise to the King, the Lord God of Israel. <clears throat> for the nations too. The nations are made witnesses of God's powerful and merciful acts toward his own people. And so they are to praise God on the basis of what he's done for those who are his. The psalmist is calling the world to follow in the footsteps of people like Rahab and Ruth, who united with God's people in worship of him. It's in this way that Psalm 100 points toward the removal of the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile after Pentecost. That's when the good news took root in Jerusalem and from there spread to the ends of the earth. Now all who have faith in Christ become the Israel of God, Paul says in Galatians 6, being blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And so the call comes to us today to make a joyful noise in worship, to utter the cry, yes, of victory. <clears throat> well, we today, of course, don't experience that volume of shouting. We're rather unfamiliar with war on our own Canadian soil. And none of us, I think, was around in 1883 to hear the ear-splitting reverberations of that erupted volcano. The closest you might get would be something like the booming roar of the Bayshore Community Center packed to the gills for attack, playoff hockey, or maybe the Rogers Center in Toronto for playoff Blue Jays baseball. That's an example of what our worship, our thankful praise is supposed to sound like. God likes noise. Loud, exuberant, vibrant noise. Psalm 47 verse 1 says it again. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. This is what God wants of us here in church on Sundays. Our worship of God has to be something we show. We can't be silent or mumble our way through the singing of the praises of our king. <clears throat> oh sure, 
There's no doubt about it that silence can indicate reverence, and that's vital, that's important. <clears throat> but God calls for joyful music and lyrics sung by us who have so much to be joyful about. The prince of this world has been thrown down by the king. If worship is in the first place supposed to be something that we show on the outside, and that's only because it's based on something on the inside. That's the second command. Serve the Lord with gladness. So not only do we have to show outward exuberance in our worship, though the Lord requires more than just shouting, he requires worship rooted in gladness. Enjoy. <clears throat> he wants an outer display that is rooted in an inner disposition. Joy and gladness have to overflow from your heart as the fruit of God's Spirit living there. And this gladness, this joy of a believer is no mere emotion. It's a gladness that's rooted in something very objective in the comfort and the reality and the promise that we belong to the Lord. That's the source of our joy and our gladness. And so we are to relish that, especially on the Lord's day. Our inner joy has to be expressed, especially on the Lord's day in the public gathering of the people of God. This is the day the Lord has made. Let's rejoice and be glad in it. This goes to show us, brothers and sisters, that our worship must not be empty praise or a mindless cacophony of decibels. It has to be sincere and holy, rooted in joy. For if our exuberance in worship is not rooted in deep gladness or marinated in truth our worship is a stench in the nostrils of our God and that's because it's then based upon mere emotion euphoria sentimentalism that kind of worship belongs to the world to Hollywood to Satan it's in many ways the worship of the scribes and the Pharisees this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. That worship is vanity. Brothers, sisters, our, our gladness in worship has to be anchored in our knowledge of the Lord and obedience to his will. That's what we show here, a submission to his commands. This call to worship comes from the Lord, Yahweh. That's what our psalm says, serve the Lord. In other words, worship him alone. You cannot serve more than one God. Our worship has to be exclusive. Deuteronomy 6 reads, it's the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of all the peoples who are around you. We serve the Lord alone. 
come before his presence with singing. That's how the psalmist continues. Our worship has to reach God's heavenly throne. And that happens not by us investing in some amplifiers that we put outside the building so that the whole town of uh, city of Owen Sound hears us. No, our exuberance reaches the Lord when we find our delight in Him, when we respond to Him here with an unashamed enthusiasm. That enthusiasm coming from both the booming and the soft-spoken that can shake heaven and earth. That enthusiasm, that acclamation is what is fit for a king who is the savior of his people. We serve a great God of all the earth. All of us, yes, all the earth is called upon to adore God, our maker. That's how the psalmist started out. All the earth is to worship God. It's part of the character of our worship. We are commissioned here, equipped here to go out into the earth, pleading with the world to assemble with us in worshiping our God. Yes, there is an evangelistic component to the call to worship. Get out to all peoples. It's a worldwide call. It's the call of the Lord in Isaiah 45, 22 and 23. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn. From my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue swear allegiance. Congregation, we need a psalm like this to refocus us, to get us beyond our own trials and worries and circumstances. The Lord knows what we need. He knows that we need the words of Psalm 100, so that's why he gave them to us, to call us out of our little world and to praise him for all he is worth and with all that we got. And it's a praise that's only going to get better. We have to yearn for that. One day, God's praises, they will truly fill all the earth in the new Jerusalem. We have to thirst for that with thankful praise. The Lord continues in verse 4 with his call to worship. It's a renewed call, another threefold call. It's a bit different from verses 1 and 2. Now it says, Enter his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful to him. Bless his name. Well, it's here especially that the psalmist is specifying that this worship takes place in a certain place. These words, in the, those words, gates and courts, they focus our attention on the worship of God, in this case, in the temple. The courts, they were open to the people of God. Now in our time, of course, after Christ, we don't go to the temple anymore. We enter the Lord's courts here, 
in the church of Christ. This is where the word of God is central. This here is the bulwark of the truth. We may enter here because of Christ's work of atonement. Not only are the outer courts open, but the most holy place is also open for us to enter by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain. We don't have to stand outside and wait for the priest to go about his business of sacrificing. We ourselves may participate in the sacrifice of thanksgiving here before our God. <clears throat> and again, this is where all nations must gather. We have this task to reach out to the world, to call them in so that together we might worship and honor the Lord with the praises of his name. Yes, that's possible because we are the New Testament temple with the Spirit living in our midst, living in our hearts as well. <clears throat> Through him, we as church may carry out our prophetic task by sending out servants to the ends of the earth and bringing in the lost. But here also, as, as the church of Owen Sound, by the Holy Spirit, we can carry out our prophetic task in this world individually in testifying by our words and our lives to the hope within us. We do that, as the Apostle Paul says, by offering our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to the Lord, as our spiritual act of worship. Our whole life must be one unending testimony to the holiness of the name of our God. It's an everyday testimony of the thankfulness for who he is as the name above every other name. Every day for the redeemed of Christ. And the psalmist goes on to tell us why that's the case. It's our second point this morning. We see our cause for worship. When we turn to verse 3, we're given three causes, three reasons for worshiping the Lord. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us, and we are His people. <clears throat> Brothers and sisters, our worship can be exuberant. It can have an evangelistic quality to it that we are here strengthened once again to go out and live as a light in this world. But what does this worship really start from? From the truth and the confession that the Lord is God, the only God. We have to know this. The psalm says, it's our starting point. Without this knowledge, we can produce all the enthusiasm and the emotion and worship that we want, but it is entirely useless. We can praise, but it would be without purpose. Singing and worship that's not based on scripture is shallow and it's self-serving. Our knowledge of the Lord is the basis 
for our gladness. Knowing leads to rejoicing, not the other way around. We have to know the Lord, confess Him, acknowledge Him. And for us today, we come to know that the Lord is God by knowing His Son, Jesus Christ. Because if we know the Son, He said that we're also going to know the Father. For in Christ, the fullness of deity dwells in the flesh. It's worth knowing the Lord God. Indeed, eternal life means knowing the Father and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. Worship acceptable to God is worship from the hearts of those who know him. Psalmist continues, it is he who made us and not we ourselves. That's another cause, a prompt for worship. He's not just talking about creation, but also his work in making a special people for his own possession. He created all, all humanity, but he also constituted Israel as his chosen nation. And in Jesus Christ, through whom all things were created, Colossians 1.16, also a new nation has been created, a people for his own possession. In Christ, we belong to God. And so we shout for joy to him. We are put in this world for him. You and I know even clearer than the Old Testament church that we are not our own, but we're bought with a price. That leads the Apostle Paul and also us then to exclaim in 1 Corinthians 8 verse 6, for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we exist. We exist for God. We belong to God. Because of this, we worship Him as the church purchased with the precious blood of our Lord. We and all the earth live for Him, for we all depend upon Him, our Maker and our Provider. And that brings us then right into the third cause for worship. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. He owns us and he cares for us. We belong to his flock. We are his sheep. We enjoy his sovereign control, yes, but also his special care. And we need that, you know. He calls us sheep for a good reason. Sheep, as you might know, are weak, defenseless, needy, stubborn, and often not very intelligent at all. They don't stay together of their own. It's almost a part of their DNA to wander off from safety, to wander off on their own. Sheep need a shepherd. They need constant attention. And that's us we will follow the natural impulse to wander away from everything that gives us safety and security in God. We need constant attention from our shepherd. 
And that's why it's so meaningful that the Lord has decided to use in Scripture this image of shepherd and sheep. <clears throat> shepherd delights in caring for his sheep. He will go to the ends of the earth to ensure that they are safe, secure, well-nourished. That's our God. He cares deeply for us, and that's comforting. In his love, he defends us. In health and sickness, he leads and he guides us. And as our good shepherd, he laid down his life for us. We know that to be true in Jesus Christ, the chief shepherd of God's flock who lays down his life for his sheep. Is that not cause for worship? For the flock of the good shepherd to join together in unison to make a joyful noise to the Lord. In the final verse of Psalm 100, we have another threefold call, a cause, reason for magnifying God, for thankful praise. It's directly related to the worship of verse 4. It's full of conviction. For the Lord is good, His mercy is everlasting, His truth endures to all generations. For the Lord is good. On the one hand, maybe you think that that seems to come off the psalmist's lips way too easily, almost as if it's flippant, even unrealistic as far as our thoughts go. We can sometimes question the goodness of God. We know, we think of the well-known exa well example in Psalm 73. The psalmist Asaph starts out, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But he continues, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. I just about lost it when I saw the wicked appearing to enjoy God's goodness and his blessings while I floundered in frustration. But the psalmist goes on to describe how he recovered how the Lord guided him by his counsel and right hand. We can also question whether our Lord is good to us when we grieve, when we or a loved one receives a life-threatening illness, when we're deprived of children or of a spouse. But the psalm before us this morning reminds us that even though our circumstances do change, even though we can go from prosperity to adversity, there's one who always remains the same and remains good. That's our God. And you know, that's not to say that he's good in the same way that you and I might call the weather good or a book good. He's simply in an altogether different class. He's above and beyond any good thing that we may know of on this earth. He is infinitely greater than any good thing you or I could possibly imagine or conceive of. He just can't be slotted into any box or category that's made according to our criteria as far as what is good. 
No, he is eternally, unchangingly good. Psalm 119, verse 68 says, you are good and you do good. And the New Testament picks up on this in those well-known comforting words of Romans 8. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Because God, who is good, does good things. And that applies to what he does for us as his people. In all things we confess. He uses prosperity. He uses adversity. All that we receive from God is good. Because it's for our benefit, whether we see it or not. God's goodness is beyond measure, and it's beyond our understanding. But it's for our good that he is that way. And so it's precisely because this is the case because he is good for us, that we worship him. We have cause for worship because of who our God is. We do this so that we would grow up in our salvation now that we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. <clears throat> Just how is he good? I think verse 5 answers the question quite simply for us in its final words. His mercy is everlasting. Here we come across another beautiful loaded Hebrew word, chesed. It's very hard to translate with one word into English, but it means his unfailing, his covenant, steadfast love. That's why it's called mercy in English. Maybe that is a good translation because we don't deserve his unfailing covenant love. It's a covenant love that you and I are simply incapable of producing. But it is a covenant unfailing love for us that endures forever. And it says at the very end, his truth endures to all generations. You can also translate truth as f fidelity, faithfulness. <clears throat> He's dependable as faithful God. He is the rock. His works are perfect and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. Deuteronomy 32 verse 4. Brothers and sisters, these two final causes for worship are trying to tell us something. You will not find anyone like the Lord of Israel in either ancient times or today. He's the Lord of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, of the psalmist of Owen Sound Church today. Who is like the Lord of unfailing love and faithfulness? He is beyond comparison. And that becomes all the more clear in the New Testament. The concepts of chesed, mercy, and faithfulness both appear in the first chapter of John's Gospel. John 1 verse 14, what do we read? Well-known words. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, 
and we have seen his glory, glorious of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth, full of unfailing love and truth. And John goes on. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. This unfailing love and truth come through our Savior. He's completely full of it, overwhelming and overflowing with it. He will never let God's people go. That's the point. And he had made that unmistakably clear at the cross when he secured our redemption for us. John later quoted him as saying, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. John 6, 39. That's the chesed and the, the truth, faithfulness of our Savior, who through the power of his own resurrection will raise up his people at the last day. God has committed himself to you and me forever. Beloved, this gives us undoubtedly great cause for worship, sustained, continuous worship, since our God is enduring and faithful continually. He deserves it. And so our psalm holds out for us not only beautiful promises, but it exhorts us to live in open thankfulness to the King about those promises. Shout joyfully, serve with gladness, enter with singing, with thanksgiving, with praise. True worship does not stay on the inside. Those around you are supposed to hear that you worship God. Our sacrifice should be audible and visible. And it should continually rise up to our Father in heaven as sweet-smelling incense. That's what Thanksgiving is all about. That's what our life is all about. Know that the Lord is God. He made us and we belong to him. Come to see his unfailing love and faithfulness in the sending of his son to die for us. And so worship him with thankful, boisterous praise as the one who will be faithful to the end. That's what makes our worship so festive, so joyful. Let every Sunday be our foretaste of what Jerusalem will be like when God's chosen ones are all together praising God with the volume cranked. Amen.